So we've returned to our series in the book of Exodus. So if this is your first sort of week back in the new year, let me take just a second at least to sort of catch you up with where we've got to in Exodus. We're at chapter 17 and the people have been miraculously rescued from Egypt, a country in which they were caught in slavery and oppression for 400 years. And in that time, they've been forced into labor. They've been stigmatized. They've been used. They've been abused and even murdered. God has miraculously delivered them from the power of Pharaoh by the power of his strong arm. He's led them out through the Red Sea, rescuing them and devastating Egypt's army. And we catch up with them here around a month or so later on, on this journey through the wilderness to the land that he has promised. And already they are doubting the God who had delivered them and they are doubting Moses who had led them out. If you believe everything that you see on social media, you will have a completely wrong view of the world. Let me give you an example. You see these lovely pictures of these family hikes. And for one thing, they're in places where the sun is actually shining, it's not raining. uh, And everybody is very photogenic and they insist that there's no filter, but it looks very much like there must be. It doesn't show you though the reality of doing that with young children. It doesn't show you the rucksack of drinks and snacks that you are carrying and that they want five minutes in. It doesn't tell you anything of the complaint that my feet are hurting in 10 minutes. It doesn't tell you of the cry that they're bored 20 minutes in. It says nothing of the chaos that ensues when that rucksack of drinks and snacks is gone at 25 minutes. And then the inevitable cry to be carried. That is the sort of frustration that Moses is feeling and facing as he leads this people, a grumbling and forgetful people. And as they doubt whether God is with them, God shows that he is the God who shows up for his people. And I want to show you three things there in those verses. That firstly, God provides for empty hands. That secondly, God strengthens weak hands from willing servants. And that God raises his hands to your enemies. If you turn to those first seven verses there, we see God providing for empty hands here. And let's not downplay it. The people face a problem here, don't they? They don't have water. And that is a big problem, isn't it? And we can know that too, that sometimes in life we face genuine problems, don't we? Things that are worth being anxious about. When the account runs dry. When the contract runs out. When the cupboards are empty. When a job falls through. And in the midst of this problem for Israel, their trust wavers. The reality they're having to face and that we're seeing here and that we know all too well in our own lives too is that the Red Sea rescue was the beginning of the story arc and not the end. And for us too, our beginning of coming to faith in Jesus is not the end of the story but the beginning. It's not as though you come to faith and then you never have any problems afterwards. No, it's only the beginning of a new journey, isn't it? All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord 
and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. They're on their way towards the land that God has promised, towards embracing their freedom, their new identity as a, a new nation, or not so much a new nation, but a newly liberated nation. And yet they find themselves with no water to drink along the way. Moses gives us a very quick spoiler. It doesn't take long to get into the drama of it, but here is the problem, that there's no water for them to drink. In fact, it's a recurring theme and a recurring problem for the people of Israel. This isn't the first time that they have whinged like this. In fact, at the Red Sea, they've whinged. Why have you brought us out of Egypt? Was there just not enough grave space in Egypt that you've brought us out to die here? In chapter 15, they've complained that they were thirsty and they've been provided for. In chapter 16, last week, we saw they were hungry and they complained and they were provided for. But just one chapter on, they are complaining again. We are thirsty what are you going to do every time something goes wrong for the people of Israel or actually we might put it more accurately it just doesn't go the way that they thought it would go they say why have you done this Moses as if Moses had sort of engineered these situations now maybe the Israelites as they say this know that Moses didn't orchestrate them maybe they know that Maybe instead what they're really saying in saying this is, why haven't you controlled this situation? Why haven't you gotten a handle on this? So actually throughout Exodus we see that firstly, God is in control of everything. And secondly, his plans are for their good. Though they might not always understand them. And here there is a challenge to Moses. And the challenge seems to be about his competence as a leader. You, Moses, haven't done something that you should have done. And so they blame Moses. They blame Moses for something that was not in his control. Because, do you notice at the beginning of that verse there, they moved according to the commandment of the Lord. It wasn't Moses' directions. He was just relaying the directions God had given. But they whinge and they blame Moses. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The people quarreled that word is a very sort of polite word really the way it's been translated to English it would be better translated something more like contended they face a struggle and so they blame their leader and I think you probably know this experience too don't you if you lead at school or at work or in your home even or in a social club or a sports club maybe even in church you know that leading is hard and when people aren't happy with their lot they can tend to bite the hand that's fed them and we also know that's not personal that contending isn't really with the leader but here it's with the God who has put that leader there. Why do you quarrel with me, Moses says? Why do you test the Lord? Into the New Testament, Paul writes that all authorities are placed there by God. And by resisting them, you're resisting him in Romans 13. 
So, maybe it's worth asking, how many of our problems really are about those in leadership over us? Parents, bosses. How many of the problems are really about the leaders? And secondly, how many of our problems will be answered by grumbling? And here, there is a challenge to Moses' character. They've challenged his competence. You haven't done something we think you should have done. You should have provided us water, and you haven't. It's not in his power to do it. He's not even given the, uh, created the directions. He's just given the directions of God. But they've challenged his competence. Here, they challenge his character. This bad thing has happened. So you must have bad intentions for us in doing it. Why would you allow it to happen? And they wrongly interpret his motives. It's not just that you've done something that we don't approve of, but we now think you are evil. And then there's a contrast, isn't there? Look at Moses' reaction in verse 4. The people have grumbled, they've quarreled, they've contended. And what does Moses do? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And there's a contrast. The people are grumbling, but Moses cries. The people accuse, Moses pleads. And look at God's answer. It's five to six. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And instantly God is invoking the memory of that staff. And all the previous rescues, all the previous plagues that have come by the hand of that staff of Moses. It invokes a memory as they embark upon a new rescue as water comes from the rock. And the reality is here for these people, they didn't have to grumble. They never had to get to that point of grumbling because just as God had rescued and provided for them before, so he would continue to do. They didn't have to distrust God's ability and desire to provide for them. And so there's a memory aid for them as well, to remember this reality going forwards. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and they are provided for and they drink. Verse 7, he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? There's a memory aid for them going forwards. So they'll remember what's happened. These places are renamed so that they'll forever be able to recall this, recall what they had done and recall what God had done for them. Sometimes we can be imprisoned by past failings, can't we? But here there's a reality and an expectation and a hope that they'd be motivated by the past failings. That, yeah, I remember what it was like to be there. I remember that moment. And I don't want to go back there. Sometimes one of the best things in life to move forwards is actually to have failed very badly, only to recover from it 
and to think, well, I know where I don't want to be going forwards. And look at what the real problem was at the end of verse 7. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, we don't know whether they actually outright verbalized that. Whether they did or didn't. The thing is, in what they were grumbling about and why, there was their intention. There was their struggle. There was the real problem. Is the Lord among us or not? In the last chapter, the question over God was about whether he would provide. This is about his presence. Is he even here? Does he even see? And I want you to notice the irony. I think it's supposed to be somewhat humorous. The people are asking, is God with us? Is he among us? While God visibly shows up at Moses' side. Do you remember that as they're walking through, and even here as they're in Rephidim, God is before them in a pillar of cloud and fire? And yet they ask, is God among us? They're not sure if they can see God's presence, but God is present before Moses, enabling him and empowering him and equipping him. See, God is with his people. He shows up for them, even when they're trying to walk away from him. We see that God provides for their empty hands here. But secondly, we see that God strengthens the weak arms of willing servants. In those first seven verses, it's an internal threat that's going on to the people of Israel, isn't it? It's a threat that's within them. And the threat is that Israel have a lack of trust in God's trustworthiness to provide. Because of their own lack of trust, they might pull themselves apart and they might depart from God's plan. But in verse 8 to 13, we see an external threat to them. That now they are attacked by enemies around them and between them and the land. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And we see here the emergence of a deadly rivalry that will span some generations. The Amalekites were descended from Esau. If you remember the story back in Genesis, Esau is the twin brother of Jacob. Jacob was the line of God's promise and Esau was the one who hated his birthright and sold it out for a bowl of stew. And the commentator here, Mackay, says that they consistently and implacably opposed Israel and the Lord. Here, they represent the first challenge of heathendom to the newly freed people of God. Although they were beaten in this battle, they continued to be hostilities between them and Israel into the period of early monarchy. And there is a reason why what Amalek and his people did was so shameful and causes so much anger from God. And it's about how they attacked as well. We know this from the way that Moses later frames this in Deuteronomy when he retells the story. Deuteronomy 25 verse 18, speaking about this, he says, He attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. The Amalekites preyed opportunistically upon the most vulnerable and the most weak. It was a cynical and inhumane 
attack. And it was one that was primarily high-handed and against God and his promises and plans. And so God is righteously angry at Amalek and these people and the ongoing stubbornness and resistance in generations to come. Look at verse 9 and 10 there and Moses' response again because here we ask some important questions about leadership. Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. How do we identify a leader? Well, one of the things we see here is that leaders do things that don't make sense to everybody else. Because I think the reaction of most people in Moses' position would be to do one or both of two things in particular. Firstly, to throw yourself into a flurry of activity because you need to be seen to be working really hard in the face of a big crisis. To throw yourself into a flurry of activity. And secondly... To put yourself at the head of the front line because of a feeling that you need to be seen to be there. You can't be seen to be shirking. You have to be there at the front. You have to be there working the hardest. I think really that's a martyrdom complex. That's not leadership at all. You need to be seen to be the valiant but plucky loser making a nonsensical decision. But it puts you at the front. And it makes it look like, oh, you did your best. But a decision that's doomed to failure. And so Moses does the very opposite. Moses seeks God. In fact, he has raised another leader in his place. And he delegates. Moses has learned, you see, the most important thing he can do in this crisis is to look to God to work through him, not throw himself into the front line, not throw himself into a flurry of activity. That's busy work. No, the most important thing was for him to plead with the Lord. And so he puts Joshua in charge of the army and doesn't even then try to micromanage him. He leaves him to do it his way. And of course, there's a sacrifice and a cost in that, isn't there? And we see it here and we see the story careful to make sure that this doesn't happen. But there is a natural temptation for Joshua is the one who leads the front line and he leads them to victory. Who do you think that people are going to be tempted to credit in the light of this? Joshua, not Moses. Because he was the one getting his hands dirty. He was the one leading the front. He was on the front line. And Moses sacrifices that people might not think that he is the hero after all. But you see, our faith is to be in God's salvation. That he saves us through his power, by his grace, which we trust in faith. We don't trust our ability, our strength, our ability to manage and control. And this trust in God's salvation should touch all of everyday life. It's not just a theoretical thing or a sort of past event. It should affect the way we work. 
It should speak into our inability sometimes to say no. It should speak into our struggle to be tempted to micromanage those we even delegate to. All of those things speak of something going on in our heart that we don't really always trust that God has everything in order and that my freedom doesn't rely on my hand. And so if you're leading, whether that's raising children, whether that's in your home, whether that's at work, at school, on a team, in a charity, whatever it may be, let me ask you, are you seeking God's help first and foremost in doing that? And secondly, are you making room for God to work through others? Are you always throwing yourself into a flurry of activity? Are you always putting yourself on the front line? Leaving space for God to work through others? See, Moses as a leader, as we all do, in whatever context we lead, and we all do lead in different ways, needed people around him, and we do too, who could do what he couldn't. And to hold him up. Where we lead, do we have the faith to realise we aren't the saviour, so we need the help of others? But, I mentioned it briefly already, and we come back to it now because it's important. You could easily misunderstand this to be a story about the military prowess of Joshua. Because, it tells us in verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So, in verse 11 and 12, we have this very graphic and almost comical sort of picture of how the war was won to tell all the generations. Look at it. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Moses and his inner circle know it wasn't through Moses or Joshua, but through God that they had won. That the well-being of Israel did not rest on a leader being good-looking, charismatic, talented, a popular personality. The well-being of Israel, in fact, rested on having a God who strengthens the weak arms of an obedient leader. This is the very, very opposite of what the world values. Obedience is not glamorous, in fact, appearance and charisma, talent, personality, these things are celebrated and lauded until those same very leaders fail for those very reasons. God strengthens, though, the weak arms of willing servants. God shows up for his people, and their safety and their protection lies not in their own hands, but in trusting God. God provides for empty hands. He strengthens the weak arms of willing servants. And then lastly, he raises hands to your enemies. The people here face a challenge, don't they? They're a young nation. They're newly freed. 
They're refinding their identity after slavery, and that has been systematically broken down, isn't it? And they're trying to learn what it is now to live as free people. And they face these stronger, more established nations who see their vulnerability and they see an opportunity in that. So now what are Israel to do when these new enemies raise their hands to them? Well, God had delivered them from Egypt, but could they trust him to keep on doing it again? That's the challenge, isn't it? Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 14, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God not only provides for and protects his people, but he fights for them. He's a saviour. And he is a saviour, but he's also an avenger in doing that. The Amalekites had made a very dangerous enemy in attacking Israel. Again, a commentator, uh, Mackay, puts it this way. The metaphor here that's being used, being blotted out, is derived from the way writing would be erased from a scroll by rubbing it with a wet rag until the ink was washed away and you're literally removed from history. And the Amalekites eventually would be in that their people in their kingdom would come to an end, but it doesn't happen quickly can hear of them being opposed by Gideon in Judges 6 and 7, them being partially destroyed by Saul in 1 Samuel 14 and 15, and eventually annihilated in the days of Hezekiah in 1 Chronicles 4. But look at what it tells us there. Recite it in the ears of Joshua. This is a message that isn't to die out with Moses, but is to be taken up by Joshua. It gives us a first hint as to what is to come in the future in that Joshua will be the one who will take over the reins from Moses and actually, in fact, ultimately be the one who leads the people into the land. But this is a message that's to be seen and known beyond the people of Israel, even to all the peoples. Because look at how Moses puts it. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That phrase there, the, the Lord is my banner, is referring to a military tradition at the time. Armies would use a pole with a distinctive piece of fabric, a flag or a banner on it, as a rallying point. And so as he says, the Lord is my banner, what Moses is saying is, God is the one that we're looking to. He's the rallying point. He's the one whom we belong to. He's the one whom we serve and honour. And it's by placing our confidence and our trust in the strength of God that we'll prevail and take this land that belongs to God and has been promised to us by him. It's a statement from Moses, but it's also a statement from Moses on behalf of this people. It's not just for me saying this, but for me, on your behalf, the Lord will be our banner. He will be the one who will pull us together and who will deliver us from our enemies and will lead us into the land that he has promised. He is the one in whom we will place our trust. It's a way of saying very clearly, very visibly, very publicly, that God alone was their hope and strength. It's nailing his colours to the mast, but also for the people who are with him too, for now and for future generations. 
for this people and beyond. Then we have that challenging ending, don't we? A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If at the first bit of that sentence in the quotation marks, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, is a very challenging little phrase to translate from Hebrew to English. And I'm not sure that this translation totally does justice to to what's being said because it feels ambiguous doesn't it whose hand is it upon the throne is it speaking of Moses hand upon the throne like a positive thing that he was praying he was trusting in God and that's what happened or is it talking about someone raising hands to it in a negative way that they're trying to go against it and contend and conflict with God challenging little phrase to translate it might be better translated in fact that hands were lifted to the throne of the Lord And what it means is the hands of the Amalekites in rebellion, a negative thing. That makes better sense of the second part of the sentence. It means the two things connect. Because the Amalekites raised their hand to God, that is they try to oppose and contend with God, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekite attack was a challenge to God's reign and to his plans to bring Israel into freedom And into this land. And so God is both a saviour for his people. And an avenger. Against those who seek to destroy his people. Israel have doubted whether God was present with them. And they tested the Lord by saying. Is the Lord among us or not? And there was an irony there wasn't there? That God has been with them. In a pillar of cloud and fire every day no less. And you see, we often think, we sometimes say, well, you know, I could just have more faith if maybe I could see something. Maybe he would just do something miraculous. Only the experience of life tells us when he does, we often don't. There is just this little bit of distrust, a sinful distrust that is very deep within our natures. And so look, at God's response. God's response is to show that he is the God who shows up for his people. That firstly he provides for empty hands. They are thirsty. He provides water. They didn't have to grumble. They only had to cry. Because he hears and he answers their cries. Back in chapter 3 God has said this. This is why I'm going to rest. It's because I hear your cries. I see. I know. I'm good to fulfill my promises. He's come to rescue them from Pharaoh and he's not done that so that they might die out here. And we don't need to grumble that we don't have. We need to trust God that he'll give us what we need. Secondly, he strengthens the arms of willing servants. They face the force of the opportunistic Amalekites and God rescues them from destruction. And they aren't saved by a great military leader but by God strengthening the arms of an obedient one. Their strength and their security rests in trusting God to deliver them from destruction. And so what we most need in life isn't to feel more in control. We need to feel more confident in our trust that God will save us. And thirdly, God raises his hands to your enemies. The people here could Trust God to continue to deliver them from the hands of their enemies. 
Their hope, or their lack of hope, should not be attached to how strong or how weak they feel they are. And so we don't have to frantically struggle and strain and exhaust ourselves, but trust him who holds us up. And all of that should shape the way that we live everyday life, how we face our work, our studies, our leading a team, our facing crises, relational strains and conflicts. But the hope that we have here is more than just, here's a few tips for how you'll have a better week. It's more than that. It's greater than that. It's more real and lasting than that. The hope, actually, is that God is the God who shows up, and he showed up in Jesus. Jesus faced all these same temptations. He, too, is in a wilderness, hungry, thirsty, tempted by Satan. And what does he say? Matthew chapter 4, verse 7 you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The people here face a struggle and they put God to the test. They're reminded once again, they need not do that, but just trust him. Jesus faces all the same temptations they faced and we face too, and that we sometimes fail in, and yet he was faithful. And so the hope is not just that, oh, well, through God, you can do a little bit better. Here's a little bit of self-help with a veneer of Jesus on the top of it. No, no, the hope is that God has faithfully fulfilled every requirement of his law in Jesus for you. And that at the cross, not only is your sin lifted from you, but his righteousness is placed upon you. And so that if your faith is in Christ this morning, your hope is that you are righteous like him because of what he has done. And you can face the things that you'll face this week with confidence and strength because he has won the victory. You are not going to go out and win the victory this week. You are going to go out and live in light of the victory of Jesus this week because God is the God who shows up for his people. Let's pray. Uh, and as I do, the band will make their, their way back up.